Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, boys and girls, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas. I'm coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, per usual, a very cold, frigid, snowy, icy uh, Knoxville, Tennessee at the moment. Um, On today's edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast, I'll be joined by fellow University of North Georgia alumni, Matt Green, to talk about some more college football transfers. Uh, We got Dylan Gabriel spurning UCLA for Oklahoma. We got Zach Calzada dipping out of Texas A&M and College Station to go to Auburn and join uh, Bryant Harson's club. Then we got potentially Jim Harbaugh leaving Michigan for the Las Vegas Raiders. That's a possibility, it seems like. Uh, and then we, of course, preview the College Football National Championship game between Alabama and Georgia, the SEC title game rematch. All that and more with Matt Green on this edition of the podcast. Plus, we've got stats by Will on a myriad of college football or college basketball topics, rather very college heavy edition of today's podcast. But uh, we got Brown Jr. up there in Washington, what he's doing, Johnny Davis at Wisconsin and that big win against Purdue, uh, Tennessee's offensive struggles, but still finding a way against Ole Miss, um, teams up, teams who are down, Gonzaga and uh, Baylor still being one, two and Ken Palm, all kinds of stuff there. Um, also, Charlie Burris of A to Z Sports joined the podcast to talk about the Tennessee Titans. Derrick Henry's back. They uh, have the opportunity to clinch the number one seed in the AFC this weekend. Uh, so what are their Super Bowl chances? We talk about all that. And then, of course, some balls being both Knoxvillians and Tennessee students and alumni. Um, before we get started with today's show, I would also like to mention how you can, you know, support the program. It starts with leaving a quick five-star rating, and a review on Apple or Spotify if that is your preferred app of choice for listening to this very podcast. Uh, Be sure to go to visit uh, chasethomaspodcast.com for access to all of my previous episodes and make sure to subscribe to the Sports Renaissance Man, that's me, (laughs) the Sports Renaissance Man newsletter at sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com. It's free. Just type in your email there and uh, you'll be all set. Uh, as always, you can email the program at chasethomaspodcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at chase double underscore Thomas. Like the Facebook page as well at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. All right, Uncle Darren, let's ride. Chase Thomas podcast, the Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello. And welcome back to a, another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and I am coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, with my good friend, fellow University of North Georgia alumni, Matt Green, full ride, late on a Thursday. How are you doing, sir? Good evening, sir. I'm uh, I'm jacked, <laughs> as Dan Quinn, our boy, would say. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it's just been an exciting week, man. Obviously, still uh, watch, watch the Orange Bowl probably three or four times at this point, you know? Okay. Um, just reliving the, the, the great game that was the semifinal. It wasn't great from a Georgia perspective. But um, I've basically just been trying to uh, consume any sort of Alabama, Georgia, college football playoff content that I can because uh, it's, it's an exciting week. Have you really rewatched it three times? Oh, probably, man. I mean, hmm. probably not the whole second half, but it's like, but just, yeah, you're sitting around like near the end of the night, you're like, you know, I'd, I'd like to watch that. Uh, I, I watched it like twice on my DVR and then it just like came on the TV and I was like, mm. well, shit, 
I'd like to watch this again. Like this was a uh, good stuff, and I recorded like the um, the one on SEC Network did too. So I watched like the normal game, and then I watched like the SEC Network one where it was like the hometown coverage, like the radio coverage. Oh, okay. And they like kept a camera on Kirby like the whole time, so it was kind of cool, like seeing like a different different thing. But yeah, I mean, it was great game. Uh, fun, fun two quarters too. So it's like you just watch those first two quarters, and that's basically that's basically ball game. I would like to see the all twenty two. We don't get that. Like I, I pay for the the all twenty two for NFL games, so I watch that a lot of early mornings and go through tape there. And I love watching the rookie quarterbacks all twenty two. That's like one of my favorites. Uh, for NFL they really stuff. do. I was watching. I don't remember what bowl game it was, but it was Andre Ware talking about it, and he was talking about it for so long you could almost like feel someone from ESPN like nudging him, like, "Hey man, shut the hell up." This is, <laughs> this is the production we have. We're talking about the all twenty two stuff. Uh, he was just kind of going on and on about it, but he was like, "Yeah, you can actually see what's happening in the game. A quarterback, you can see what a quarterback's looking at." Mm-hmm. It's but a yeah. game changer, man. And this is not a problem with other sports like baseball. You don't need this. Uh, basketball, you don't need this. But with football, uh, views matter. And college, not uh, giving up those all twenty-two tapes. Uh, I don't know. Right. I think video it'd be- games. Video mm-hmm. games figured this out like twenty years ago. <laughs> that this is not the best view for football we have to have be behind the quarterback nba games figured it out too because you it would i feel like the automatic would start off on like how we look at it on tv Mm. but i don't know since 2000 at least like just the the default start is the the vertical view where you can see the whole floor yeah i don't know why they don't do that because uh, even high school uh when i watch like max prep stuff and i'll like i was watching some calhoun tape earlier this week and uh i don't know they the camera work is so much better <laughs> because they pull up and you can see it's a great angle and i can see everything i need to see and i'm like okay their trips left and they're doing that and then i'm gonna see when they drop into zone or uh go cover high like it's it's just easy uh and I don't for those of us that have like just lived with college football recruiting high school recruiting for the last like 20 years like it's insane the increase in technology like, yeah the the grainy footage you used to see on that's players. gone well i think part of that is because kids want to be seen and they want their tape to be clean and clear and want it to be easy for folks to be able to go and check their stuff out like i think that needs to be top notch i think that's part of the deal yeah without a doubt uh, don't forget, folks, you can follow Matt Green on Twitter.com. So go follow Matt at Matt underscore Dev underscore Green. Follow myself at Chase double underscore Thomas. If you like listening to Matt and I talk college football on this very podcast, make sure and leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com today if you have not already done so. And then make sure to email us at ChaseThomasPodcast at gmail.com with any college football questions you'd like to like us to answer on a future show. Uh, Matt, before we uh, we dive in to the to the main event, uh, the UGA Alabama national title game, um, let's talk first because Matt Green, Nigel the Nighthawk, we love Nigel the Nighthawk. Um, he delivered some news. What's Nigel got? Nah, <laughs> did you? I sent you the the statue of Nigel right this week. Yeah, I I still that was still unclear about that. I am too. Is that on the Gainesville campus or Dahlonega campus? I think it has to be on the Gainesville one, right? It kind of looked like that quad little mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. I don't I, know. I wish that was there. That was pretty pretty neat. Campus feel more like a real college. I'm all for it. 
I'm I, you and I were we're always going to be Nighthawks primarily. We love our Georgia Bulldogs and Tennessee Volunteers, but there's still a lot of Nighthawk blue and gold running in these veins. People forget that. Um, Dylan Gabriel, I think this is something that I think is super super interesting because he committed to transfer to UCLA leaving uh, the prison that is the Gus Malzahn offense uh, year after year. And he is now going to Oklahoma where Caleb Williams also put his name in the portal. So Rattler and Williams gone in the same offseason uh, for Brent Venables, but he avoids disaster by bringing in Gabriel, who, man, I just, I look at this and with Jeff Levy, he reunites with Jeff Levy, who he put up the monster numbers with, at UCF with Josh Heupel. Um, man, this is a lot, but I also, I, I saw this and I was like, okay, this is one of the flaws with the transfer portal, right? Like this is something we have to address. Like this is, um, if he told Chip Kelly <laughs> that he was coming and he told this whole coaching staff that to expect him, that changed how they viewed the portal and changed how they viewed their roster. And now they've got to kind of scramble and it kind of puts UCLA in a bind and we look at UCLA differently and this is obviously a big get for Oklahoma to stay afloat uh, next year without Caleb Williams but man I don't know I don't like it and I think people just have to be honest about this stuff I just think it's very important that we're always honest and we address these things one at a time case by case basis and for me I look at this and I was like man that's kind of crappy and there's no punishment for this just to kind of spurn uh, UCLA like this and just burn them and go to Oklahoma at the last minute because Caleb Williams went in the portal. Like this is one of the pitfalls of nobody really watching over this and this just being kind of the wild, wild west in the portal, right? You know, you're really, you're, that's a really good point you made. I hadn't really thought about that, but for, to start with, I'm going to say Dylan Gabriel under the, you know, system that exists, Dylan Gabriel did absolutely nothing wrong in my opinion. Like, he decommitted from a school, basically. Like, we've seen high schoolers do that for years and years. But your point to needing some sort of national letter of intent for the transfer portal, I think, is absolutely, is absolutely like, spot on. Because, like, that – it definitely impacts the way a team is going to recruit and all of that. Like, the, what a coach is doing. Like, everything. But what it goes back to is, like, the fundamental failure of – that is the college football calendar. Like this is what it's all about. Like for, I guess, I mean, I guess classes haven't started yet, so he's not too late to enroll in classes, but because of all of this influx of everything happening and like coaches going here, going there, some guys are assistants that are still on teams that are still playing games, but they're going to go somewhere else. Like it's just, it's craziness. And it's it's really it wouldn't be fair for Dylan Gabriel on December seventeenth, whatever day that was, to be like you have to choose where you're going right now. Like so much stuff has happened since then. Like even if he signed something, he should be let out of it with all the craziness and all the different coaching changes that have happened. So I can't even fault Dylan Gabriel for this, but it just shows how jacked up the college football calendar is. Like we have to do something of. Like the season ends this date, the portals open this date, the signing period, it all comes back to the early signing period. I think really that's what just, it causes everyone to, everything to just go in, in zero, zero to 60 when you don't even know which direction you're supposed to be going yet. So 
it's just it's it's craziness. I, I just don't fault Gabriel for specifically what he's doing because like if starting quarterback at Oklahoma is leaving, well then Oklahoma is now a way more attractive destination, mm-hmm. and he should be doing what's best for him. And all that can be true, but like you said, and like I mentioned earlier, it's this is a system problem. Like this, he's taking advantage of a broken system at the moment, and exactly. we've got to do something about that because. I'm just going to go ahead and guess Chip Kelly is not a hap- uh, happy camper, uh, especially with his contract situation and everything going on at UCLA at the moment. Um, like in, in a mm. scenario where we have signing day in, in February, you know, say everything, you know, we get everything we want right out of the college football calendar. And we think we get a system that makes sense. Even if you do have something crazy, like, Caleb Williams transferring like this could still potentially happen. And a guy's going to be like, Oh, Oklahoma court, Oklahoma's quarterbacks leaving. I'm going to jump in there and take that spot. But maybe with a, a, a calendar that makes sense, you know, maybe Caleb Williams making this decision. I don't know. After, after signing day or something like that. I, I, I don't know. I think there's a, there's a way for it for team programs to not just be completely blindsided by these decisions. Yeah. The, because there's no czar, then the uh, just the ads or school presidents around the country have to meet. They need to figure this out. They need to. You get paid a lot of money. This is what you should be doing. You got to hash this stuff out. Like you've got to make a plan and do stuff. You have to address this. This is something that has to be addressed. These coaches are going to lose their minds. Like this is just so much to keep up with. And I just don't know how you can ever be a hundred percent about your roster. Like this is. This is too much for a coach. Like we, everyone's just anti, anti coach. And I'm telling you, I talk to a lot of them. This is not okay. Like this, I just, I could not imagine just the the stress this puts on coaching staffs. Yeah, without a doubt. And this isn't the first guy we've seen do this either. I mean, we saw Eric Gilbert last year mm-hmm. uh, in the portal and he said he was going to go to Florida and then ends up going to Georgia and, you know, he still hasn't played. So maybe that's why you don't, you know, it's kind of out of sight, out of right. mind, but I think yeah. If, if we prob- things like this are happening, it's whoever is in charge of college football. Like I guess it's the you know conference commissioners at the end of the day. But like these guys don't even trust each other, so they're not going to. I can't really trust that we're going to get a uh, uh, progress with when those guys get together. The conference commissioners and the Notre Dame president, of course. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it's just college football. Like we've said over and over, it needs some sort of you know commissioner to 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 run this whole thing um speaking of caleb williams though people are throwing out caleb williams to you to uga the one thing i'll say about that the one thing i'll say you get back-to-back 13s at qb potentially um hey there's not a coach in college football that is better at getting five-star quarterbacks on the roster so <laughs> i mean i wouldn't put it past uh kirby smart to take a swing at caleb williams but I mean, just looking at everything Georgia's got, obviously Caleb Williams is better than anyone that's on Georgia's roster. So if if he wanted to do that, like, I'm sure he could end up being the starter. Well, but, if um, he does that, what I was going to say at the end of that was, and this is a lot of thing you can go at, was that <laughs> so much is riding on what Stetson says after the season. Like, he cannot do this long, drawn out, like, I'm going to take the semester to think about if I'm going to come back in the fall. Like, he is going to have to publicly say whether or not he's coming back immediately because that quarterback room there is so much talent in there and there's so much incoming talent and if Caleb Williams tells Kirby like depends on Stetson he's out then I'll come and that's a real possibility is if he waits till January 11th and he's like all right 
What's the plan? Like Stetson cannot play coy about his his future plans for the University of Georgia. He has to uh, be clear because I think Vandegrift and Gunner probably want him to be clear. I think their families probably want him to be clear about his intentions because if he comes back, he's starting next fall. Like I think that is very much uh, going to be in the cards. He's starting. So that means you're losing Vandegrift or Gunner, one of the two. Um that just, I, I think so much is riding on the still, musical chairs. I think they're still young enough that they wouldn't necessarily transfer this year if they weren't the starter. But, okay. um, but going moving forward, yeah, I mean, if, if he's, there's a, there's a lot to happen between now and then. I know if, if Georgia doesn't win the national championship, which is just such a crazy bar to set for someone, right? Like this guy's a former walk-on and he's basically being measured on if he's good or not by can he beat Alabama in the national championship. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a funny bar to set. But if Georgia doesn't win the national championship, then he's, he's probably the number one guy going into next year. But there's nothing that's guaranteed. I mean, we saw J.P. Daniels was the number one guy coming into, uh, into last year or into this past year. So, um, you know, everything remains to be seen. I, I wouldn't think Georgia would get a guy like Caleb Williams – um, but you know, who knows? I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, you probably didn't think you were getting Jamie Newman either, right? And we never got James. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got him. He just uh, didn't play. You did get him. He he did practice. I would say more than Jamie Newman, the JT Daniels. That's really what was out of out of left field because like you had already gotten Jamie Newman. So for JT Daniels to transfer, former five star quarterback, like. Kirby's shown he's willing to just get get the guys on the roster and and sort it out from there. I think a lot of a lot of people have questioned his his decisions uh, at the quarterback position over through the years, but um, you can't argue with George's results through yeah. through the first six years. Uh, DJ Durkin replaces Mike Elko, who took the Duke job. Um, he is the new uh, Texas A and M uh, defensive coordinator. I the one thing I'll say about this uh, in terms of uh, football is old Miss man Lane Kiffin in this offseason he lost Matt Corral he lost Jeff Levy and now he's lost DJ Durkin and you combine that with Luke Altmaier did not look very good in the bowl game and I don't think there's a lot of uh, a lot of excitement about Altmaier going into next fall with him being under center I know there was a lot of push for Altmaier to uh, get so this is interesting. Um, Grayson Wire, who was on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, Red Cup Rebellion, Bro Bible, um, he made this point. And it's funny, like the way everything happens in college football, it's just the, the way the dominoes fall will never not fascinate me. It's the, it's the most beautiful mess in, on the planet. And Dylan Gabriel is an Ole Miss rebel right now. If Jeff, Le- if so here's how I should start this. If Lincoln Riley does not take the USC job and Lincoln Riley stays at Oklahoma and if Jeff Levy does not follow or if Oklahoma doesn't hire Brent Venables, they hire someone else. They hire anyone but Brent Venables. Jeff Levy is still in Oxford. Guess what? If Jeff Levy is still in Oxford with all those other previous moves, guess who is in town to replace Matt Corral? Still in Gabriel who wanted to follow Jeff Levy anyway. So wherever Jeff Levy ended up, that's um, where he ended up. So Ole Miss kind of uh, being left out to dry here. They didn't uh, finish where they where most fans had hoped uh, with their uh, recruiting to this point. But they're also coming off the best season <laughs> maybe ever uh, for Ole Miss. And there was a lot of optimism and they're playing in just the brutal 
the brutal division that is the SEC West, but I'm very curious to see what Ole Miss looks like next year, man, because they are replacing a bunch of talent and a bunch of coordinators, and I I don't know. That's a, that's a lot of turnover and a lot of change for one year. So we don't know what the un- over-under is for Ole Miss in 2022, but let me just go on record uh, right now and tell you I'm banging that under. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they have too tough of a schedule. They play, you know, three non-power – three group of five schools and Georgia Tech, so four group of five schools. Um, so I don't think their schedule is too tough as far as to add on to the SEC West, but but yeah, exactly. You've seen the SEC West. Like if you if you have a down year, if, if 10 and 2 is your ceiling, like your good years, then you know a down year can can be six and six in that in that division. But um I, I don't really know what to expect from the SEC West next year. Like with um, Max Johnson at A&M, like I think they should be one of the better teams. I think we all still kind of question the legitimacy of Arkansas, even though Sam Pittman has like had two good seasons now, kind of showed like linear progression. And um, but we still kind of just worry, wonder about them. Obviously, Alabama's always there, but I uh, if a, a bad season for Ole Miss, and if they could if they could somehow get Caleb Williams or something, I think that's a game changer. Like. If he, if they like, I don't think you're getting way. Caleb Williams. They don't even have an OC right now, did they? Do they? I mean, they have Lane Kiffin though, so I don't think you're as worried about the offensive coordinator when when the head coach is someone like Lane Kiffin. But I know I just know they got Zach Evans in the portal today. Um, former five star. Former five star. TCU. Lane Kiffin. He just uh, players like Lane Kiffin, even though yeah. they're recruiting. Their recruiting isn't necessarily where you want it to be uh, after year two, but. Um, I don't know. That's the only thing that I feel like can really be like encouraging if you're an Ole Miss fan. Because I think as great as this season was, I think it's back to reality kind of next year with how much they've lost. Um, well, speaking of Max Johnson and Texan M, so I'm going to read you a tweet from Friend of the Pod, Matt Wyatt, former uh, Mississippi State quarterback, been on this podcast. Uh, we've worked together in the past. Uh, good people over there in Mississippi. He tweeted, so... Dot, dot, dot. Former LSU quarterback Max Johnson transfers to Texas A&M to replace Zach Calzada, who transfers to Auburn to replace Bo Nix and compete with TJ Finley, who is benched at LSU in favor of Max Johnson, who is transferring to Texas A&M to replace Zach Calzada. Wow. That's a little <laughs> musical chairs action. The portal is an unreal place. Like, it's a, changed college NFL football. coaching... Uh just recycling going on over here it really is it's like the all the different 79 coaches or the the bill belichick assistants and different like it didn't work for them but it might work for us uh a lot of that going on and i don't know man like max johnson and AM, i'm still probably the most high on like if you're an auburn fan you're not jumping for joy it's at calzada uh, we'll see with austin davis taking over the offense if they look a little bit different uh without bobo but um, the A&M is just the best situation right. for a quarterback to come into. For sure, for sure. Um, but what do you make of Calzada at Auburn? Is that surprising, interesting to you? Um, do you think it's an upgrade over Bonex? Or, oh, I'd say it's mildly interesting. Hmm. <laughs> um, keeping that Sugar Hill uh, connection going to right. Auburn. Um, but no, I Zach Calzada was just... Like, what he did against Bama, like, you can't unsee it, you know? Like, he, he did that. He played well. But he was just – he was so below average most of the season. Like, um, I just 
like I think Bo Nix is a better player than him. So I don't know. Come in, compete with TJ Finley. Like I would, I would give TJ Finley the early, the early edge there. But um, yeah, it it, it remains to be seen. I I just don't. I can't get too excited about Calzada. Yeah, Auburn does not does not excite me going into next year. Um, Especially with Jimbo Fisher, you, you yeah. feel like you, you probably got as good as you could have gotten under a coach like Jimbo Fisher. Like, I, I don't know if it's going to get better uh, going uh, play under Brian Harson and, and Mike Bobo. Is Mike Bobo, wait, did he get fired? No, Bobo's gone. Bobo's yeah, it's gone. it's Austin Davis, the quarterback coach from uh, the Seattle Seahawks. Mm, okay. He, Harson's pulling eight, from the Northwest. Well, huh? Do you play at Southern Miss? Maybe. I don't know. We'll look it up. Um, you're more of a Golden Eagles guy than myself. <laughs> <laughs> Future Sunbelt team, right? Didn't they? Aren't they one of the group, the, the universities moving to the Sunbelt soon? Did they? I, I've lost track. I know. Sunbelt did make some moves, though. The Sunbelt's awesome. The Sunbelt knows what they're doing, man. They know their brand. They know... Uh, I hope they get settled because the Sunbelt's built something pretty cool. Um, I like I like what the Sunbelt's done. Um, last thing, we'll uh, get to our... Awesome. Davis mm. is a Ringgold, Georgia native. Really? Right up, there, right up there near the border, practically Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did go to Southern Miss. Okay. Driven through there undrafted, a lot. Undrafted in 2012. Played for a few teams. Um, but yeah. Interesting. Maybe that name sounded familiar. Okay. Also a, Bur- a Burlesworth Award winner. <laughs> okay. You're aware of the Burlesworth Trophy. Yes. I was not aware of that until uh, until recently. Okay. Quality trophy. It is a quality trophy. Um, last thing, and we'll get into our University of Georgia versus the University of Alabama College Football National Championship preview. Um, there is a rumor going around this week. Jim Harbaugh looking at the Raiders, looking to get back into the NFL. What do you What do you make of that? Um, I think it's a bad decision for the Raiders or for Jim Harbaugh. For Jim Harbaugh, hmm. I feel like he's finally like. You know, cashing in on some of those uh, like promises, he, like what, kind of what his vision was to to go to Michigan, go to the alma mater. So it it seems like a weird timing. Like they, the way people always talked about him in the NFL was almost like the the longer you get to know Jim Harbaugh, like the less you like him. So that kind of worked better for college, where the players are just you know kind of cycling in and out. But um, I don't know. I he's obviously a good coach. I think he's shown like even though he he got a lot of you know flack at Michigan for what he wasn't doing. Like he he had some good years at Michigan even before this year. But he's I mean he's got a proven track record. What he's done at multiple stops in college and in the NFL. So I think any I think he's capable of of coaching at any level. But I think it'd be a bad decision like in terms of the overall success. Well, I think it just depends. So it's like, I think of Brian Kelly with Jim Harbaugh, where it's like, after getting blitzed by Georgia in the way that he did, does he just look at all of this and go, I've hit the tipping point. I've done all I can for Michigan football. Like we just have a, we have a point where we just can't, I can't get past that point. And if you're a, just an obsessively competitive person, I can understand why that would wear on you and you would be like, have a lot of, a lot of sleepless nights thinking about like are the best case scenario will I have enough players to get over the two game hump in the in the playoff to win a national title will I will I get there and they're agreeing the top 10 every year but um 
I don't know. I think that is a real conversation to have because it's just he won in the NFL. He went to Super Bowl. He hasn't been to a college football national title game. He's been there for a long time. And the Raiders, it's a better job than Michigan. But it also just depends on he's got a really I mean, he took a a pay cut, which I think was super cool to pay for his staff and keep uh, just pay for stuff uh, with COVID cuts. Um, I think he did a great uh, post-game interview and Marty Smith talked about that on his podcast this week that he was just super gracious and after getting blitzed the way that he did to just be a professional and uh, just keep his composure and talk about uh, what happened and where they go from here, I thought was cool. Um, I don't know. I think either decision would make sense to me, but I can understand the temptation to look at the situation in Arbor and kind of look at it from Brian Kelly's standpoint where he was like, look, man, I think I've done all I possibly can at Notre Dame. I'm just the one of the best coaches of all time in South Bend. I've done all I can. However, it's not Lou Holtz era. I can't win here. I can't win at LSU. Every coach wins at LSU. I'm going to go win a national title. And if Harbaugh comes to the realization that he cannot win a national title in Michigan, which they have not done in how many decades now, then he has to think about, you know, doing something else. I I get that. I will say, though, Kelly was there for, what, 10, 12 years? Mm. Uh, He was there for a while until I think he ultimately made that realization. Like, should, should Harbaugh look at, like, this Michigan team was good this year, but should Harbaugh look at this team and be like, this is the best team I could have possibly constructed. If in this team's getting blasted by Georgia in the semifinal, well, I know I don't know what else to do. Like this isn't the best possible team he could he could have. He's a he's he's a guy who's coached good quarterbacks and he had like almost negative quarterback play this season. You know, like they Cade McNamara did very little, especially when you look at what you know the quarterbacks of like top ten teams are usually doing. I just I I think if if the Raiders are giving him more money, you know, and maybe just he's he's in kind of a weird position because like Kirby Smart was was fortunate enough to where his alma mater is a big enough job to do everything he needs to do. And he's not going to go anywhere else, look for anything else. So Harbaugh is in a position where I feel like if he took another college job, it would almost be like you know, stabbing his alma mater in the back forever. So it's like his only out is going to the NFL if he doesn't feel like he can win in college. Mm. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. You got to do what's best for you. And he's got to make some some tough choices. But I understand both perspectives here. Um, Matt, we're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsors, but we'll be right back. All right, we are back here on the Chase Thomas podcast where I am still joined by Matt Green. Follow him on Twitter.com at Matt underscore W underscore Green. Follow myself at Chase double underscore Thomas. Go check out Chase Thomas podcast today if you have not already done so. Um, Matt, it's time to talk about UGA versus Alabama. And my first point to you, I, I can't shake what you said last week. I can't shake it. Not about anything on the field but about how annoyed I am that this game is happening on Monday and not just being taken care of this weekend. This should be a Saturday game. I don't I don't like that this is uh we have to do the whole weekend without this football game. Grinds my gears, sir. <laughs> I don't I don't get it. Are you taking Monday off? I'm not. I'm taking Tuesday off. <laughs> so regardless of what happens, mm-hmm. you know, I know it's going to be a late night. Okay. Yeah, it is. It's going to... How long do you think this game's going to go? I'm going to say four and a half hours, maybe five. It's going to be a a solid four, at least. Mm. 
All right, Matt. Well, let's get into this game with the George, the, the SEC title rematch. Um, college football playoff ratings were down again um, for the semifinal games. They, the trend continues. They're going down. Uh, I imagine this game. Remember, they've, they've been the worst when they do them on New Year's Eve, though, mm-hmm. right? I think that's kind of a variable that's – and getting two blowout games, of course. But most are blowouts now. That's part of yeah. the deal. That's definitely part of it. Um, but I don't know. I'm curious to see what the rating is for a a a rematch of a game that we've already seen this season, and b uh, two schools in the same conference in uh, one specific part of the country. Um, I imagine not a lot of West Coast, Midwest folks, even Northeast folks, are all that interested uh, in this battle. But you and I, growing up here, and obviously being SEC fans, we are interested and want to watch this game again. But uh, I am curious to see what all that looks like um, next week. But in terms of the game itself, Matt Graham, what is your biggest question that you have heading into UGA versus Bama on Monday night? I think the biggest question you have to ask, um, especially after the first matchup, is can Georgia get pressure on the quarterback, like on Bryce Young? Like they – not only did they get zero sacks, I feel like they didn't even really affect him in the first game. And, like, this team had 41 sacks in the year. I think they were fifth in the country in sacks. Like, I think they got four against Michigan, who was, I think, allowed 10 sacks the entire season uh, coming into this, uh, coming into that Orange Bowl game. So, like, you saw Cincinnati get two, at least two sacks, right? Like, that's not even really doing that much. But Cincinnati at least affected Bryce Young at times. Like, even though he didn't have to pass, he didn't really have to do anything with how they ran the ball against Cincinnati. But I think that's the number one thing. Like Georgia, on top of like just the the basic thing is Georgia. Georgia was not able to make Alabama one dimensional in the last game. I think that was huge in in Alabama winning this game. Like they had what is it, hundred and just over a hundred yards. I thought I had it written. Yeah. 26 carries for 115 yards in the first game. Georgia had 30 carries for 109 yards. So, I mean, they have the Heisman Trophy winner, and they're running the ball better than you. I think I think Georgia has to run the ball better in this game, and if they're able to make this Alabama running game, you know, make this Alabama offense one-dimensional, I think that's that's the biggest way they win this game. I think they have to – They were Alabama was just able to run the ball way too much. That's why I thought – Cincinnati I thought Alabama was going to run all over Cincinnati not I didn't predict it them going for 300 like they did but that's the biggest thing and with Brian Robinson healthy I think that's a that's a huge concern um but with just seeing how Georgia played against Michigan's offensive line like you would expect with a more like a more unproven like we know the prospects Alabama gets but they're kind of a more unproven offensive line so it was interesting to see them have so much more success against this this Georgia defensive line do you think Bama is going to be able to run on Georgia the way they ran on Cincinnati? No, there's no chance of that. But they don't have to do that. I mean, with with Bryce Young, like if they if they do what they did in the SEC championship game and go, you know, 26 for 115, they're averaging over four, almost five yards a carry. Like that's all they have to do, and just keep that Georgia defense guessing. And that's what basically nobody has been able to do against Georgia the entire season, except for Alabama. And I think just looking, but I don't think it, it takes some, like it was a, they beat up Georgia handedly in the first one, seven, 17 points, 
But I don't think it was just some game where Georgia's just going to throw out everything they do. Like, I, I liked one of the comments I heard Stetson Bennett say, like, you know, someone was asked him about, you know, playing better against against Alabama. And he was like, I honestly didn't think I played that bad against Alabama. Like, he had, like, over 300 yards passing. Like, I mean, if you look at his numbers, too, he's 29 of 48. Like, Bryce Young was 26 of 44. Like, that's you know, percentage points better as far as completion percentage goes. So it's not like he just played terribly. Obviously, Bryce Young was way better, but it was the turnovers. Like, those two turnovers, like, that's just, you know, seven 14-point swings right there that, you know, that and that's how they lost by 17. So the defense giving up, you know, 24 points in the second quarter, I think that's the biggest thing that Georgia should be kind of, I don't want to say confident, but, they should just they should assume we're probably not going to give up 24 points in a, in a quarter again because this team hadn't given up more than 17 points in a game before that. Obviously Alabama's better than anyone else Georgia's played, but the the way they the Alabama just absolutely torched them in that second quarter and unlike any other quarter in that game. Like they scored 0 in the first, they scored I think zero or seven in the third and, and three in the fourth quarter. Like obviously the game's a little different once you've built a lead, but it, it was just it was kind of an outlier there how Alabama absolutely picked Georgia apart in that second quarter. And and I think missing John Mechie, that's definitely in terms of a game that, you know, maybe swung on a couple of plays here and there, losing a guy like John Mechie, I think could be could be the difference in this game. Because like Jameson Williams is a star, but if he's the one guy that Georgia's got a key on, then maybe, maybe they can they can limit him some. But without without Mechie, I think that could be big. And it, and we still don't know about um, Chris Owens, the right tackle. He got hurt in that Michigan game. I thought he was out. I, have they said he's out yet? I don't think. I thought hey, Saban was kind of quiet. I thought about some of those injuries that happened against Michigan because there's also the corner mm-hmm. um, that they, they, they weren't sure if he's going to play. So a couple of those key injuries could be enough to maybe swing it into Georgia's favor. But I also just think, I think Georgia just being more of what they do, they seem to kind of get out of what they do uh, against Alabama once they, once they got down 14 points. Cause I mean, if, if you think about it, like, like they on that lad McConkey touchdown tied it at 17 like with Stetson Bennett as the quarterback, like we're tied at 17, and then the next time Stetson Bennett takes the field early in the third quarter, Georgia's down 14. Georgia's all of a sudden down 14. So I think uh, if Georgia's kind of sticks to what they do, the defense has to make some plays, and, and they just can't turn the ball over. I think the Michigan game was huge in just terms of, like we talked about the negativity around the Georgia like fan base and everything. Like I don't think that negativity existed on the team, but – at least like this was like a confidence builder for Stetson Bennett that like to just ball out on someone like Michigan in the college football playoff to like, there'd be no question on who the starting quarterback is going to the national championship. Like I think that, that in itself, like even going to the sec championship, there is more question on from the Georgia fan base on if JT Daniels should be the starter. So maybe that by itself could be enough to, to give Stetson a little more confidence coming into this game. Give me the best reason you can come up with as to why things will be different this time around. Um, I think the best reason why I think things would be different is probably just because Georgia's played so well defensively the entire season. And 
to see them give up 34 points, like I just don't see that happening again. Like I, I don't, I feel like having a game where you were unable to generate any sort of pressure, like a, a, a great defensive staff like Georgia's, I feel like I just trust to, to give Bryce Young some different looks because you've seen, you've seen how much Bryce Young struggles when he's under pressure. Like he, as mobile as he is, you know, no, no quarterback is, is better or just about is better when they're, they're under pressure. Maybe Aaron Rodgers is, but I think, um, I think you have the ability to, to rattle this, um, Alabama offense potentially, especially I think John Mechie too. I think the absence of John Mechie is big. Hmm. I'm curious to see what they do because it was a hodgepodge and it was some Slade Bolden. It was some Brooks. Uh, I don't know. I'm curious to see because ultimately they didn't have to really address the Mechie absence against Cincinnati. So we don't, I don't think we really learned anything. And we talked about on the pod last week. It's like, I just, I don't think we learned the impact at all with Cincinnati. So it's hard to say because as you pointed out, I don't think either of us believe that Brian Robinson is going to be able to run on Georgia's front the same way he did against Cincinnati. And that's not a slight against Cincinnati because I think they are still a good, uh, a good defense. And like you would prefer to run on them. Cause I mean, with Gardner being maybe the best cornerback, uh, in the 2022, uh, NFL draft, like it made sense to, uh, not worry as much about, uh, the pass and, run all over him like that opening drive by Bama against Cincinnati was illegal in 17 states so well that and if I feel like just any coach if he can run if he can run the ball all over somebody he's gonna run the ball all over somebody you know it's like why even risk passing the ball if if we're able to just hand it off and get seven eight yards every time I think they averaged 10 yards a carry in that game like it's just absurd so when you think about the matchups to watch is there one particular one-on-one matchup that fascinates you the most I'm sorry. They average six and a half yards care. It's way off. But um, <laughs> Samsonite. Uh, I, had, I, had that, I had to throw that out there. Sammy, Slammy, Sammy, yeah. Samsonite. Yeah, I was way off. Brian mm-hmm. Robinson was at like eight yards of carry. So um, the the matchup I think that the mo- is the most interesting is I think kind of being overlooked is Alabama guarding Georgia's weapons. I think we just assume Alabama, you know, they always have the better offense, but with Josh Job out, like that's one injury, and then we're also worried about um, Armour Davis. Like, with if both of those corners are out, like we, we've seen a healthy George Pickens, we've seen Jermaine Burton, Lad McConkey. Like Brock Bowers has been a matchup nightmare for everybody he's played, including Alabama. Like he destroyed Alabama in that first game, and and then if uh, a James Cook matched up against a linebacker, like if I think we're we're, we might be overlooking just how, how many weapons this Georgia offense has. And I, Alabama's secondary kind of worries me. Hmm. It doesn't worry me. There's a lot of talent, man. If you look at the four to five star talent in that secondary, and that was one of the things is like. Kool-Aid McKinstry was getting burned mm-hmm. for Cincinnati, though. He was. But. I just, I'm not there. Um, It's funny that we have not really talked about Bryce Young to this point in our preview. When you look at Bryce Young and you think back to how he carved up Georgia's secondary and what Georgia did, the different looks they did in that game, and that's been talked about a lot, is just that Georgia played a different defensive style and different scheme in this particular game, and that's a reason for optimism that this will be different is they'll go back to who they've been the majority of this season. But... Bryce Young is still 
on that uh, opposing sideline. How do you think Bryce Young will fare the second time around with this group? How will Georgia adjust for Jamison Williams and Bryce Young? I mean, yeah, I think that's that's a good point. I think Bryce Young is definitely he's the the game wrecker. You know, like he's the one that you know you can dial up the perfect defense, but if this guy's going to make a play, he's going to make a play. So I think um, if Georgia's just able to get any sort of pressure on Bryce Young, I think this game could be very different. So I think seeing just kind of the the margin for error, even though you know it was a 17 point game, there's a couple plays that kind of that kind of swung the game here and there. And if if Georgia's able to get some of those game plays to swing back in their favor, they can't lose the turnover battle two to zero. Like at the end, like you just you can't lose the turnover battle like that against Alabama and expect to win. So I think, you know, Kirby Smart knows a whole lot better than I do what what you have to do to stop Bryce Young and Jameson Williams because I don't know how you stop those guys. They're both they're both ballers uh, in my book. Well, my next question is: Do you think Georgia can win this football game if Bryce Young outplays Stetson Bennett? Well, absolutely, because I think you you can't assume that Stetson Bennett is going to play out, outplay Bryce Young. Like, I mean, that's like just the odds of that happening are very small. So it's it's just Georgia's just has to be Georgia. They have to consistently run the ball. Like Georgia averaging what, like three and a half yards a carry or whatever it was against Alabama in the first in the first game. Like that's that that's what you can't do and 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 win the game. Like Georgia has to be able to play complimentary football. Like they have to run the ball some. Stetson's gotta, you know, hit the open man when he's got it. And the defense just can't get torched. Like the def- for the defense to give up thirty four points in a game and the offense give up another seven, like, you're not going to lose, you're not going to win many games doing that. So I think with how good this Georgia's defense has been this year, I think there's reason for optimism and, and, and seeing, especially having a, you know, a, a blueprint for what didn't work um, back on December 4th when these two teams played the first time. So I think that's, that's probably the biggest reason for optimism is just knowing that Georgia's got a whole lot of talent on defense and I just don't, I don't think they're going to play that poorly defensively, but obviously like Bryce Young can make a lot of people look bad. Jamison Williams too. Hmm. Well, what do you think Stetson's going to look like? What do you, do you think this is going to be a good Stetson game? I mean, I think it's definitely possible. I think Stetson, if you look at just how the last game went, I, I blame uh, Georgia's lack of running game much more than I blame Stetson. Like, the two turnovers were bad, but especially the pick six. The pick six just kind of ended the game, but that's also one mistake, you know? The the, the other interception, that's two mistakes. But I think there was just uh, there was some miscommunication, I think, uh, a couple times in this game, but I think uh, Georgia's just got to be able to run the ball better. And I think you saw against Michigan – like Zamir White, like he, he's a, he's still part of the offense. You know, he had a, a solid, a, a solid performance in that game. But I feel like you saw less Zamir White versus Michigan in the first two quarters. It felt like you got more James Cook, Kenny McIntosh. I know Kendall Milton is healthy again, um, but I just don't feel like Zamir White. I don't feel like his style. It's almost like back in 2017, like Nick Chubb was the better player between Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle. And you can see at the NFL how much better he is. But there was something about Sony Michelle had that wiggle that he was he was the one having success against Alabama in that game. He had something like 
10 carries for like 90 yards or something where Chubb had like 18 carries for like 30 or something like that. It was just, he was the more just pounded up the middle and that, that style, maybe it's Alabama. Like that's obviously like four years ago, but maybe it's an Alabama thing. Like you need some of those guys that stretch the defense more than just trying to pound it right at him. And, and that's why Zamir white, I don't feel like he had a lot of success the first time these games, these teams played. I think James cook needs to be, you know, the guy in the offense that gets the most touches. I think he's much more dangerous and he's a better he's a better ball carrier than than I thought he was coming into the season. Like he's he's shown that he can run between the tackles as well as be a weapon in the receiving game. But I don't think Stetson has to be Deshaun Watson for for Georgia to win this game. I think Georgia's just they're so loaded uh, defensively, and you know even even the help around Stetson uh, with the weapons on the outside. Like I think Georgia Georgia has a lot of offensive weapons, and and you're seeing them like. They just kind of had a hodgepodge the entire season with with different guys that had different injuries at different times, guys returning from injuries, like, and you've seen kind of the the maturation over the season. Like now, everyone's healthy basically, and they they have a lot of a lot of mouths to feed on that side of the ball. And Brock Bowers is just a matchup nightmare. He is, but we just like <laughs> Bowers is like one of those people, and I mean. One of the things that frustrates me, uh, this is just not even a, a big thing, and it's not worth uh, ever getting riled up about, but the the constant uh, announcer uh, reference to Bowers being a tight end, um, it needs to stop. We need to stop calling Kyle oh, Pitts a tight end. Gonna, I thought you were going to say the, the constant mention of him being from Napa. No. I feel like that has to be mentioned on every... Oh, it's from wine country. Like I feel like it has to be mentioned. Just like Jake Fromm playing in the Lily World Series. Uh, can I tell you which active baseball player both won MVP in the World Little League World Series and uh, in the Major Leagues? There's only one active player who's done that. There's only two ever that have done this. Is it like uh, it's like Jackie Bradley or something? Some it's not. Who is it? I'll give you a hint. It's Cody Bellinger. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. It's quality. It's quality yeah. uh, achievement right there. It's not bad. It's not a bad, not a bad run. Um... I'm excited to see how this all unfolds. I look, you're not going to like this, Matt. I, until it happens, I think unless you're a Georgia fan, it's just, there's no point in doing that. You're throwing money away. If you're not a Georgia fan and you put money on Georgia, I mean, there, what's the line right now? Is Georgia still two and a half? Yeah. I think it started at three though. Right. Now okay. it's two and a half. Um, until it happens, until a quarterback who is not as good as Bryce Young loses a national title game to a Stetson Bennett, um, we haven't seen that in the modern era. And people are like, oh, well, we can go back to Jalen Hur- or uh, to Blake Sims or Coker or whoever before him. Okay, that's all well and good. However, I think college football has even changed uh, an astronomical amount in the last uh, three years um, that I still hesitate to believe that a Stetson Bennett can win a national title. And if he does, it's an all-time great achievement. Uh, Kirby deserves all the credit in the world for sticking by him. Um, however, my gut still tells me the upside if JT Daniels had started this whole year. There's all kinds of stuff. We don't need to get into any of that. The five-star pedigree, what he saw, the, the, the best of the best, where if you need the pedigree versus pedigree, the quarterback versus quarterback, you want a JT for a full year, matched up against Bryce Young. That's what you want. That's why you brought him in 
was for this particular reason. Stetson's great. He was he had his best game as a Georgia Bulldog uh, against Michigan. All well and good. That was Cade McNamara. Now we've got Bryce Young, and Bryce Young is uh, probably going to be a two-time Heisman winner in college. The it's right there for the taking. Um, would not be surprised if that's the case. It's going to be very very difficult for them to flip the script. Um, I I have my doubts. I don't think they'll do it, and it stinks. Uh, Will Leach, friend of the pod, wrote a really good piece from Medium about uh, Georgia's going to win a national title at some point. And I still think that's true. I think it's just not going to be this year. I don't think it's going to be against Bryce Young. I don't think it's going to be against this Nick Saban team. And it's unfortunate because I think if Georgia gets matched up with literally any other of the 128 schools in college football this year i think georgia wins a national title but against this one particular school this one particular quarterback we have just seen elevate his game to an obscene extent over the last several weeks and with the talent that he has i just i don't think he's losing i don't see it i can't wrap my head around it um i don't think it can be that much of a swing going from the blowout we saw to Bama losing. I I can't see it. Um, the best I can see is it being a lot closer this time around. So even that I don't see happening. So I am going to do our final score here as we wrap up here tonight. My final score is Alabama 38, Georgia 21. All right. So you made a couple points there. I'm sorry, Matt. I thought your Coker, your Coker versus Deshaun Watson comparison was interesting because you just kind of assume Alabama is Alabama in every scenario, but Georgia might be the Alabama in that scenario to right. Deshaun Watson with Clemson. That might be more to Bryce Young with Alabama. So that that version, because Georgia does have a pretty loaded roster and a loaded defense, so this version of Georgia might be more like that one. But um, no, I can understand that. I, I'm glad you brought up one thing is – the other 128 teams in college football because all I've seen this week and I have, I shouldn't say all I've seen this week because I've, I've, uh, I've taken in a lot of content, but the most common thing I've seen this week is can Kirby get over the Bama hump? Right. Mm -hmm. That's the narrative. That's what everyone talks about. Like it's just something mental with Georgia that they can't beat Bama. And, while all Georgia fans are frustrated if not being able to beat Bama, they're frustrated in the 40 years that it's taken them to win a national title. Like, let's not act like there's people out there that are just consistently beating Bama. I got some numbers for you here. Okay. So Dabo Swinney, I would say, is probably the the one coach that can talk about beating Bama, right? He's 2-2 two and two versus Alabama. And the first time you ever played Alabama, he's been a head coach for 14 years. First time he ever played Bama was year eight. Urban Meyer, one of the best coaches in college football history, 2-2 two and two against Alabama. He was a head coach at Ohio State and Florida for 13 years, and he played Nick Saban four times. 1-2 at Florida, 1-0 oh at Ohio State. Ryan Day, 0-1 oh in his three years as a head coach. Brian Kelly, 0-2 oh in 12 years at Notre Dame. Lincoln Riley, 0-1 oh in, in five years as a head coach. Jimbo Fisher, 1-4. He's been a head coach for 12 years. Auburn, 4-10 versus Saban. They're the ones that have actually beaten Alabama, right? 4-10 versus Saban over the last 14 years. LSU, 
Joe Burrow, they beat at Alabama. They're one in ten versus Bama for the last eleven years. So Kirby Smart has been the head coach for now. This is the sixth year, and he's zero and four versus Alabama. So his fifth matchup now in six years is more matchups, is more games versus Nick Saban than Dabo Swinney and Urban Meyer's entire career. So it's just it's it's a very unfair like just benchmark that Kirby Smart is measured at and to pretend that Kirby Smart has anything to do with the other 30 so years without Georgia winning a national championship like this is a completely different program now like I understand the narrative exists but Georgia is different than they ever were so I say all that to say this it's hard to beat a team a good team twice I think you've heard that we've seen multiple uh rematches in the national championship and the uh, the loser of the first game has won every time. That's history, you know. That, that doesn't necessarily tell you who's going to win this game. But I think uh, I think the Orange Bowl was a big bounce back game for Georgia. I think the defense got to back to playing with some confidence. Stetson Bennett, you know, he has the confidence that he can play well on the biggest stage. While I, Michigan's defense is not as good as Alabama, I would say. I mean, they're they're. They're comparable, but I would still think I would still give Alabama the nod, um, especially against the run. But um, I think this Georgia, I think this Georgia defense is going to make some plays. I think that's why I think they'll get at least at least one interception on Bryce Young. I think it's going to take getting you know a turnover or two to kind of swing some momentum in the game. But I think you're going to see Georgia control both lines of scrimmage in this game, and but I think you're going to see Bryce Young make a lot of plays. So. It's going to go back and forth. It's it's going to be a great game, but I think I think Georgia gets it done. Shocker, I know. Uh, 31-24. I think Georgia ends the uh, the uh, 41-year drought, and 2021 officially becomes the greatest year in Georgia sports history. There you go. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Uh, Matt Green. We can find you on Twitter.com at Matt underscore W underscore Green. Uh, remember to follow myself at Chase underscore Thomas. And if you like listening to Matt and I talk college football on this very feed, make sure you leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Matt, good luck in the coming days. Excited to see what happens. And then uh, reconvene next week either way. Either way, it's going to be a very interesting pod uh, when we when we revisit next week. It will be. It will be a uh, a huge game. Matt Green, always a pleasure. Yes, sir. All right, we're back here on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined by Stats by Will. It's Mr. Will Warren. Will, good evening, sir. How are you? Doing well. A little underwhelmed by this uh, Knoxville winter weather, but it is what it is. It is what it is, man. I come from Atlanta. I hail from the state of Georgia where our city shuts down. Like we, I was a part of the snow snowpocalypse rather years ago. I don't know if you're familiar with what we dealt with. SNL did a whole thing about it. I seem to recall seven years ago now. It uh, feels like forever ago where people were stranded on the highway, kind of like what Virginia is going through this week, but on a much, much larger scale. Um, that was a that was a wild time. Uh, and just the people leaving their cars and just what that 
roadway looked like but anytime uh, we get any type of snow uh any type of ice anything like that uh city of atlanta and the state of georgia really just doesn't know what to do and tennessee at least seems a little bit more prepared but not not all that much and i would have preferred more snow i agree with you yeah more snow at, no you gotta see it when it really does get like three five inches here or whatever it is quite fun to uh see people try and drive in it i was very upset though seeing all the nashville folks rubbing it in that they got six inches you you mentioned it and i was like it looked like a lot because i had some friends on instagram post about it and i was like oh goodness this is not even close to where we're at but i was excited because it hit them first so i thought it was coming our way i thought we were gonna get that same or at least close to it and uh by the looks of it we'll be waiting a while longer yeah, disappointing. Hopefully, by the end of the month, we get something a little more substantial. We shall see. We shall see. Um, we have a lot to talk about on this very podcast, Will. Um, do you want to start, just because it's fresh in the brain, the the game last night between the Ole Miss Rebels and the Tennessee Volunteers? Do you want to just start with your, your notes from the Vols game last night? We'll get it out of the way, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, like... you. You look at the roster, you look at the talent, you know, Justin Powell's on it, uh, mm-hmm. Santi Vescovy, uh, Kennedy Chandler has good shooting numbers in his past. Uh, I mean, Victor Bailey is what we know Victor Bailey is now, but at Oregon, he was a 40% three-point shooter. Josiah Jordan James has the season of 36% in his past. What I mean, could keep naming stats, but the point is Tennessee has a talented roster in terms of three-point shooting. So the continued ineptitude to be able to put that together for more than about one out of three games is really, really frustrating to watch unfold. And, you, I mean, I guess because I have the bias of watching every single game every season, I keep thinking it'll get better at some point. But, I mean, eventually this is – and I, I like the guy a lot. I've defended him many, many times and still obviously believe he should be head coach. But this is the sixth year out of seven with Rick Barnes where you've got a below NCAA tournament median offense. And it sucks because the defense, and to be honest, I was even more impressed by the defense last night where Ole Miss hits, I believe at game's end, it was 50% of their threes. And Ty Fagan, of all players, a guy who shot 28% for his career at Georgia, never made more than two in a game, starting out five for five last night, beyond infuriating. But for Tennessee to still hold them to 51 in regulation despite that shows you just how good it is. The defense is so amazing that if the offense was just, you know, average, like NCAA tournament, 35th to 40th in Palm average, right now they would be among the 7 to 10 best teams in America. And a team we'd be talking about is like, oh, regardless of what they get assigned in the region in March, you're going to think they've got a good shot at the Elite Eight. But it feels like here we are yet again. This is, you know, seemingly the same story. It feels very much like a a better version of last year or about like the 2017-18 squad. I mean, they got two big games coming up on the next two Saturdays at LSU, at Kentucky, and they badly need to be one to keep pace in the SEC race. I'm not all that worried. I understand the the concerns with the offense, and I think that is... I, I... I don't know. Here's my thing about that. I think it's much more difficult for this team to figure out the defense. If the defense was a gigantic problem, that would concern me far more than the offense because 
it's new. Like this is a completely different offense still than what we saw for the majority of Barnes's run here thus far, but also especially last year with Keon and Jaden and company. This was just a, a very different type of deal. But um, I think this week, obviously, with uh, Falky and Kennedy Chandler coming back and them being away, I'm sure played a role in that start. But I don't know. I think there's like you laid out the top is there's still just too much talent. Like I still think that there is a path to them getting to where you're talking about that 35 to 45 window that if the talent wasn't there, um, that would be a different story, but there's still just talent everywhere. And they're, they're deep. This is a deep group. And I think Barnes is still figuring out uh, how to do this and how to best approach it game to game. But I don't know, man, like going toe to toe with Bama and should have beat Bama last week. Uh, you could make the case that, I mean, obviously this game should not have gone this way. We'll learn a lot uh, with LSU. Their offense is good. So I'm interested to see what they look like because they've gone through through some weird stuff offensively from a year ago because Cam Thomas did so much for them and kind of a young team, but very different uh, than what we've seen in the last couple of weeks from uh, their last few opponents. So I'm excited to see what that looks like on Saturday. But by and large, the biggest point here is still the defense just saves them night after night. Yep. and that's okay. Like, that's pretty amazing. Just like this defensive effort and this, we're going to drag you in the mud if we can't make our threes is just demoralizing for a lot of teams. Like this is a physical draining. We are going to go full 1999 New York Knicks on you. And I don't know. I'm okay with it for right now. And that's why I can't give up hope completely is because the defense is that good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It might take an act of God for either team to break 60 on Saturday in Tennessee LSU. Um, but I mean, you know, like I look at LSU's metrics, they have not allowed a single team to get to a point per possession this season out of 13 games, which you can kind of make a comment about like who they played. I mean, they've only played two top 50 teams, but still even Auburn only got to 70. And so, I mean, with, with Tennessee, it's like, we've seen the games where, you know, Bart Torvik has a metric called game score, and it rates your performance basically from zero to 100. You know, would a team that rates out as like 98th percentile have been able to do this on an average night, et cetera? Tennessee's got five at 98 or better, and only four other teams have that many in America. But they also have five of 75 or less. The only other top 25 team with that many, Alabama. So they're they're imitating Nate Oates in more ways this one than one this year. But it sort of feeds into the perception of if Tennessee figures out the offensive side of this at all, like just being top 40, you're going to look at them as a legit top 10 team because the defense, I mean, we'll see how it goes against Kentucky, but it's not as if to be honest, the SEC is just loaded with beautiful offense this year. I mean, it seems real, very logistically sound to me that Tennessee ends the year at minimum as a top five defense on Ken Palm. It's time for the 15 seconds on the Tom Crean University of Georgia Bulldogs. The floor is yours. Uh, they exist. Mm-hmm. They're still kicking. I, I did notice... Uh, today that ken has lowered their season-long sec record projection to two and 16 (laughs) um which that that would be pretty remarkable i mean obviously the last team to do that or worse was the 0 and 18 bandy side which is uh, quite funny but i mean uh i don't know i'm i'm really excited to see if they care enough to bite the bullet and pay the seven million or whatever it was for the buyout uh, before the season ends, because I think it's like 
it's some it's the first of some month that drops to three million and i just want to see okay second of that month is he gone Hmm. well we'll see we'll see um the biggest upsets for you in the past week have been what will uh wisconsin over produced the obvious well we're gonna get to that i want to talk more about that because i watched that whole one and it that was a really fun weird game yeah well i'll cover it here i mean I have to say that I am personally shocked at how watchable Wisconsin is. I mm. thought that they would be easily the most sicko top <laughs> team to watch by miles because that it wasn't just that I didn't really know as much about Johnny Davis as I do now, but it was the Greg Gard situation. It was that they were replacing so much from last year. It all seemed to me on paper to produce like a team where you're going to be like, God, Wisconsin just won 54 to 51 for the second time this week. And you're like, Ugh. but I mean, here we are. And they're like, not, I wouldn't say objectively fun, but fine. I mean, they're on track to grab a decent seed. Like I think in the four to seven range in the tournament. And that's better than anyone would have guessed two months ago. Uh, I mean, on this game specifically, it felt like they kind of turned it into a math problem of sorts, not in the way we usually think with threes, but with attempts at the rim, uh, Wisconsin went 14 of 16 at the rim Purdue only got 10 attempts in the room. They were forced to take 26 in mid-range and only hit nine. And so Wisconsin got the better, more efficient shots. It really helped because they did not shoot well from deep. And a lot of that was Davis. I mean, he you know took over the game. He owned it from start to finish, 37 points with no other player getting higher than 15. Um, it, it's particularly wild to see a Wisconsin player as the number two overall scorer in America right now. Uh, I mean, name the last time you saw any Big Ten player that high, let alone Wisconsin. Devin Harris? I mean, maybe. But, I mean, I just saw a mock draft earlier today, I think Bleacher Report, that had Davis at number five overall. I don't know if that's going to hold because, again, it's a sophomore and we kind of see the freshman go first. But it should give you an indication of just how good he's been. And I think right now you can make a very legit case for him as player of the year. The cool thing about him, and we could just dive into that game specifically because he he's so much fun, but it's also just he is so active where he is so good on the glass and he was just uh, a machine uh, grabbing boards in this one. I think he ended up with like seven boards or something as a league guard, but his handles are great. He's got great footwork, good looking shot. But that dude does everything for that team. He is the motor that gets uh, Wisconsin moving because it's just a collection of role players around him. But um, very different story with Ivy and the Purdue Boilermakers who have struggled out of the gate in the Big Ten uh, to this point. Are they still one and two? Are they two and two? Uh, one and two. Yeah, one and two in uh, Big Ten play. But they're they're weird. They need to figure some stuff out. Like They're not going to like fall apart or anything, but... Wisconsin exposed them a lot. Um, they took Wisconsin apart inside, but that clearly wasn't enough. Uh, Williams had a good game, but outside of that, I don't know. I thought Wisconsin looked really good, and I think the right team won, and I think we need to readjust how we view Wisconsin and Purdue uh, in 2022. Yeah, I mean, I think Purdue's defense might stink. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to – the thing is, like, offensively, they are probably the best offense we've got in college basketball this year. But it, it this could realistically turn into an Iowa situation where 
I still think this team is really good, but I mean, the right hot shooting team can knock them out of the tournament real quick. Are you just doing the ED for Garza replacement there? Sort of, yeah. Okay. I mean, you can kind of combine him, Edie and uh, uh, Travion Williams, as sort of the combo Garza, the uh, Garza Voltron, if you will. Are you an Ivy guy? Yeah, I like him a lot. I would like to uh, see him keep up this three-point shooting because he was quite bad at it last year. I think it was 26% on a similar rate of attempt. So if he's able to sustain this, then, I mean, I'm very high on him going forward. Would you say Wisconsin is the dark horse to be the favorite to come out of the Big Ten this year? Um, dark horse for sure. I don't think I would pick them right now. I, I still do believe Purdue is probably tops there. But it wouldn't surprise me to see Illinois do it. It wouldn't surprise me to see Wisconsin. Uh, I think even Michigan State looks quite a bit better than people anticipated. So it's it's a little more open of a race than I thought it was a month ago. I'm surprised you haven't mis- you haven't mentioned uh, Michigan or Ohio State. Well, Ohio State's going to hang around, I think, because mm. of the EJ Liddell, who also is going to be a real uh, player of the year contender the whole way through. Michigan is puzzling in a bad way. Um, I don't know what the best path for them is going forward because it seems like you can play. Giabate and Dickinson together somewhat, but you lose offensive spacing, but you can't take one or the other off because the team sucks without both on the court. <laughs> so I don't know. Juwan really has quite the coaching challenge ahead of him because it's the killer is that Dickinson has actually been quite good. And Eli Brooks has been an improvement even on what Eli Brooks was last year. But, like, Devontae Jones is coming well under expectation. Caleb Houston, nowhere near the top 10 recruit that was promised. Buffkin, not quite there yet. Brandon John's a disappointment. Frankie Collins, a disappointment. Um, I mean, they've got to find somebody to step it up in the second half of the season. If they, I mean, not even, like, Big Ten contention, not even upper half Big Ten like hanging on to the bubble, which is crazy to talk about when we saw this as a top five preseason team. Hmm. Uh, were there any other upsets that caught your eye in the past week? Uh, one that went way under the radar. Cause I don't think Virginia tech is like a national program. Really? Uh, NC state beating Virginia tech on the road. I do hmm. still think tech is like a top 35 ish team, but really inexcusable to lose at home to NCSU. That's like a a bottom third ACC team. Lame duck head coach really hadn't done anything this season prior to that game. And with that being on track to be quadrant three loss in what honestly is the worst ACC I can remember. um, Really bad for Virginia tech to take that L. Um, Now that it's January, well, we can reflect on the month of December I know we got to go back a little bit. We got to go back. But two things happened in December, Will. One, we went to Remedy Coffee in Knoxville. Yes. Had some good lattes. Met a friend of yours. I tried to eat a muffin in front of someone else for the first time in a long time. (laughs) It's almost impossible to eat a muffin in front of other people, folks. It's because you have to be gross and messy. And I attempted a fork at one point. I don't know if you caught me realizing i made a mistake with a muffin (laughs) it was it was tough for me it was tough for just who i am as a person um as someone who is very careful about how he eats in public 
Um, that was that was a tough L for me. Um, mm-hmm. But number two, college basketball. That was something that happened. That was there was a lot of college basketball. Well, so when you think back, who uh, who caught your eye in December, both in a good way and a bad way? Uh, I'll give three good, three bad because I like keeping it equal. Uh, okay. I think the good one obviously has got to start with Iowa State because that was a team that I don't think. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm recalling them being like distant dead last in Big 12 preseason polls, like by a mile dead. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, they can but, only go up, though. Sorry, <laughs> they can only go up from what it was a year ago. <laughs> it's true. They could only get less bad. And so the Big 12 is so good this year. I mean, like we're kind of staring down a situation where with Baylor, Kansas and Texas, you could be the fourth best team in this conference, uh, despite being in the top 15 nationally. And that might be where Iowa State finds themselves as like fourth or fifth best, depending on what Texas Tech develops into. But, I mean, that is well ahead of what any reasonable person would have guessed. I mean, the the Memphis win doesn't look quite as impressive now as it did then, but the Xavier win looks better. Beating Iowa by 20 looks pretty darn good. Beating Creighton on the road looks good. They almost beat Baylor at home, did beat Texas Tech at home last night. What they're on track for, I don't quite know season-long-wise because, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed. I mean, the turnovers are great that they're forcing, but the offense is god-awful to watch. And I do not think any team is going to sustain what they're doing in three-point defense. They have allowed opponents to shoot 24.8% from three which, if I'm recalling correctly, that would be the lowest season-long rate in seven years. So I don't think that's going to hold. Teams are going to hit threes on them. And that's okay because I think what they've done, they've done enough with their non-conference slate and with the Texas Tech win to where they could go 9-9 nine and nine in the Big 12 and still be like perfectly fine getting in. I mean, that that is, for Otzelberger to do that in year one, well ahead of schedule, that's a great surprise and a great story there, especially given how bad it looked uh, preseason and even last year when they were 2-22. Two um, so other surprises that don't stand out quite as much but are still notable, Auburn looks like the best team in the SEC, which is quite disappointing for me to report, I'll be honest. Did not want to report this. Uh, you do have to hand it to ISIS sometimes. Um <laughs> But, I mean, they had, they <laughs> pantsed LSU. That was an ass-kicking. Um, I mean, like, start to finish, LSU could not score in them. And that's the thing is, like, when we think Bruce, we always think of offense first. But at Tennessee, it was routinely the defense that was the better unit on the whole. And that's the case here, too. Like, they have a top-six defense right now, and it's legit. They are just stuffing opponents down low. You can't score on this team in the paint. I mean, the only loss right now is a double overtime coin flip to UConn. They've beaten Loyola, they've beaten LSU, they've beaten UCF, which is a better team than people realize. Like Auburn definitely could end up winning like 25-26 regular season games as long as COVID doesn't, you know, hamper the schedule. Um, and then Chattanooga. I don't know if people are talking about this team enough. Chattanooga is quite the fun little watch. I mean, 12-3, and three, they didn't do much in December necessarily. Mm-hmm. They lost close to Belmont and Murray. And the best win is over VCU on the road. But that's a team that's on track to win like 14 or 15 games in the SoCon, which is routinely a very good mid-major conference. They're easily the best team there. And Malachi Smith, if you haven't seen this guy yet, Malachi Smith fantastic player to watch on any given night hmm 
What's fun about him? I mean, he just he scores super efficiently. He's got an offensive rating of 128 right now, which is amazing for a guy with a 27% usage. Like, that's really hard to sustain. But he seems capable of doing it. Can score from anywhere in the court, out to 26 feet. Great passer. Um, and he's the engine that really makes them run. I mean, right now, Chattanooga looks like a legitimate top 50, top 55 team. Like, if you draw them as a 12 seed on Selection Sunday, you're sweating. Mm. Okay, I like it. Go Mocs. The three negative surprises we've kind of discussed already. Michigan, not looking hot. Arkansas has really sucked more than I <laughs> I did not see... I mean... So when we when I did like the preseason stuff on my site, I had Arkansas mm-hmm. like low end top twenty five, almost out of it, and that seemed to be sort of low towards the national expectation. But here we are, and in the month of December, Arkansas lost by twenty two to Oklahoma, by eight in a what was essentially a home game in Little Rock to a Hofstra team without their best player. Lost by 13 at Mississippi State, and then just two days ago, lost at home to Vandy. That is real embarrassing. And the thing is, they can't shoot. They're shooting 30% from three on the season right now. Um, The third will keep it mid-south is Memphis. Um, Memphis did have that nice win over Wichita last weekend. Kind of got lost in the college football shuffle, but good to beat Wichita by what they did by 18. But that doesn't really erase the fact that in December they went 1-4 and and the losses were just not good. Georgia, Ole Miss, Murray State, Tulane, any one of those on its own you can excuse, but four out of five is just real bad. And even a win over Alabama can't erase it. Mm. Okay. I like it. Um, I do too. I like that Memphis is not very good. It's so, a very good thing point. when Memphis is not a very. It's not very good. It's people forget, and I will not forget uh, them ruining half of my trip in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. Had the whole day built around the the noon, the noon tip between uh, Memphis and Tennessee and basketball. Truly really looking forward to it. It's part of the day. It's a game I was really really looking forward to, and I think there were a lot of folks who traveled for that game that were also looking forward to that one um who was the most to gain for you in january well <laughs> i keep i keep talking about them so i feel don't do this who are we this, going where are we going this is a uh this is becoming a michigan podcast but it's michigan i think i mean okay so it's a tall task and the way they've looked so far is not favorable to this happening but they really need to beat michigan state on saturday because if they lose, they fall to 7-7, seven and 1-3 seven, and three in the Big Ten. And I'm not really sure what the path is to an at-large bid beyond some sort of great reversal of fortune. Because they play, I think, five quadrant one opponents this month. If they even go two and three in those, that's two more quadrant one wins than they have right now. <laughs> I mean, that alone keeps them with a pulse. Um, an under-the-radar under one to pay attention to is San Diego State. Uh, it seems like every year now we talk about them outside of obviously 2019-20 as the context of like a 10 through 12 seed that you don't really want to be playing. Anything can happen with COVID in terms of scheduling, but as of now, they play four quadrant one games this month, all against Mountain West opponents. So that's Colorado State, Wyoming, Boise State, and Utah State. If they can manage two and two, that will help their at-large case immensely, which looks a little flimsy at the moment. 
Hmm. That's wild. Um, do you know what's also wild? And this isn't even on our show sheet, but um, just diving through some Kim Pom stuff real quick. Uh, it is kind of like we're at a point where we have to consider that we get, <laughs> we really might get Gonzaga and Baylor back to back, and they might be the two best teams again in back to back seasons. Have we seen, when was the last time we saw something close to this? I mean, there hasn't been a national championship repeat in many, many moons. But I think the uh, it is very funny of college basketball to be so college football to go for. <laughs> but I tell you what is actually equally intriguing there is that Houston right now sits at number three. Hmm. Houston has really flown under the radar this year because they lost that Alabama game by one, lost by two to Wisconsin. I, I mean. That's still a really freaking good team. They beat Virginia by 20. I know that doesn't mean as much as it used to, but it's still Virginia. They housed Oregon by 29. Uh, beat Oklahoma State by double digits on a neutral court. I mean, they're favored, I believe, by five or more in every single American game they draw. But you're right. I mean, we're on track to where for the second year in a row, it's probably – in whatever order it ends up being number one overall seed Baylor against Zaga, number two overall seed Baylor against Zaga. Uh, and the number of years we've had where that's happened is very rare. I think maybe off the top of my head, maybe the 2009 NCAA tournament got fairly close to that. Hmm. I am being up, but I'm going to have to. What did you see, uh, or I guess I should say, what do you see in Terrell Brown Jr. for Washington? We haven't talked a lot of Pac-12 uh, to this point. And, and part of that is, I mean, UCLA's fine. UCLA's in there. They're, they're, they, they're building on what they did last year. But Washington, who we've talked about a little bit, especially in the preview series, that their coach was in trouble, uh, that things are not going well. Uh, in in Washington uh, to this point that he was a candidate to get fired this year almost expected to get fired but uh, they have a really fun player in Terrell Brown Jr. What do you what do you make of him? I, I mean I think it's going to be unfortunate that his season will because he's on a bad team fly under the radar because if you just look at the stats that he's producing uh, he's a legitimate all-american candidate this is a guy who is scoring like crazy in the mid-range, which, I mean, we, we sort of talk about how it's not really smiled upon by nerds like me to be scoring a bunch in the mid-range. But, I mean, just basic per-game numbers of 22, 5, and 4, that's great at any level, especially in a high-major conference. Uh, like, I mean, personally, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do. I, they already played Arizona, and he was fine, but the, to seeing what he'll do against, like, Arizona, USC, UCLA, etc in that conference um i can't imagine anyone saw it coming in the preseason what he makes of it at the next level i don't really know because you know the the fact that he gets so much of his work done 10 to 20 feet from the basket not exactly nba friendly right now but i i think he passes it pretty well he's a great all-around player very good defender too um, he at least has like a role player type thing in his future at the next level. And it is really a shame he plays on such a dire team. Like imagine 
getting to see him play even on Oregon. I know Oregon yeah. has been a big disappointment this year, but imagine him on that roster or like USC or someone like that where, I mean, you don't even have to put him on Arizona to be like, man, this guy rocks. Put him on Washington State. Yeah. And it's just kind of kind of under the radar. But folks, I highly encourage you to check out his tape to this point in the season and uh, tune in on the for the late night crowd. If you can you can swing it because he is he's a lot of fun, a lot of fun to watch. Um, the last thing as we'll wrap up here on uh, this Thursday edition of the podcast, Will, um, stats that have caught your eye in the last week. Uh, so there's nothing super crazy season long. Um, but I tell you, so something that is quite intriguing that I'm keeping an eye on, and I think this is, it's going to end up being close to a one-to-one correlation. We have lost over a full possession per game this year. Hmm. Like the, the pace is down 1.1 possessions per game, uh, from 2020, 21 to 2021, 22. And you can almost correlate it entirely to there being over a foul less per game, which I mean, as a as a basketball viewer, I've subjectively enjoyed basketball a little more this year because I think we've seen less foul fest as a whole. I think if you listen to this and you watch Tennessee, Arizona, you're going to laugh at what I'm talking about. But maybe we're seeing this sort of trend of referees letting players play. And I know that is sort of a way of affecting the game in itself if you let more contact go. But subjectively, as a basketball viewer, I like that. I want players to be forced to finish through contact. I don't want to see a brawl. I don't want to see the same five videos you see every time somebody claims 1990s NBA was better. But I like that we're seeing a little more finishing through contact, a little less of the touch fouls on the perimeter. I think it's good. I think, you know, this is a net improvement. We're seeing less turnovers than ever. Uh and maybe we're seeing coaches make a decision that pace doesn't necessarily equal greater efficiency. It just means more possessions. So I, I don't know how to totally interpret that yet, but I could see this being a net positive for college basketball as a whole. Mm. Okay. Because efficiency has not gone down. Efficiency is the same. And uh, we, we haven't seen quite the jump from three-point percentage that I'd hoped. But again, we're seeing significantly fewer fouls. We're well on pace to break the all-time record for lowest free throw rate in a season. Hmm. It's interesting that it permeated down uh, from the NBA to college. I don't know. Did it permeate up? I'm not sure. I don't know who's responsible. I'm going to guess more of the, the top of the food chain there. Yeah. Um, but no, it's been good. Uh, who are you Who are you watching? Who, whose offense do you really like watching right now? Uh, I mean, obviously not Tennessee's. Well, yeah. Um. I, I must say that I have enjoyed Iowa a lot more than I thought I would. Iowa's mm-hmm. Keegan Murray is awesome, and everybody who hasn't seen him play should watch. Uh, Loyola Chicago under Drew Valentine somehow, despite losing Crutwig, is almost as good as they were a year ago, which is to say they are like a five or six seed masquerading in an 11 seed's body, and I would hate to draw them. Uh, and a team that I don't know that many people are going to end up getting to see because they play in the summit league is South Dakota state. Every South Dakota state game is chaos. Uh, they are 13th in offense and 274th in defense. They are the third best three point shooting team in America. They just played a game, uh, last week against North Dakota state, their rival 
that finished with a 90 to 86 scoreline on just 66 possessions. I am really, really hoping they get to make the NCAA tournament because if they do, they are going to be a blast to watch as a 13 or 14 seed. I like it. I like it. Uh, Will, what can the good folks check out from you at statsbywill.com this week? Well, there's always Tennessee basketball content. I'm going to try and do more national content as a way of staying sane uh, and just, you know, seeing what everyone else is up to. But uh, twice a week, you know, to expect Tennessee basketball previews, trying to be less on Twitter this year as a personal goal. So maybe less stuff there, but definitely more writing. So stay tuned for more in the national sphere. I like it. I like it. Stats by Will. Mr. Will Warren, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you so much for making the time, and I will uh, I will talk to you next week. Absolutely. Good to talk to you. All right. Hello. Welcome back to the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined by Charlie Burris. Fellow Knox Villian is here. Charlie, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate the invite. Thanks for being here, man. Uh, first time we've been doing this. Uh, a lot of Knoxville people have been on this very podcast, but uh, you have not as of yet. So it's cool to uh, make another connection uh, here in Knoxville. Yeah, man. I in anytime uh, I can find good good folks around, I always like to connect. So happy to be here. Uh, you're you're very different in your fandom than myself. You are all the way in on Twitter.com. You do reaction videos. You did it during the season with Jonathan Crompton. Um, you go straight to like, I'm going to social media while I'm heated, while I'm an emotional person (laughs) and Tennessee games inherently just cause us all to be emotional. Like my week last week was, I mean, just the combination of Atlanta and Tennessee is just not good for my health in general, but like the way the Falcons lost on Sunday, the way the balls lost on Thursday and the way the balls lost on Wednesday, just the what that did to my psyche and the amount of walks I had to do to just go step out and clear my head. Cause I was just like, why I'm so wound up. This is, I cannot let this ruin my day, but I will not lie Thursday with the Purdue game ruined my night. I, I couldn't get over it. I told uh, the sports Renaissance woman, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm going to be in a bad mood for the rest of the night. There's just no way around this. I've tried. I'm just so pissed off right now. It is a brutal way to live. I, mm-hmm. I can tell you cause it just, I, I, I have now built a persona just mm. as, a, as a sports personality for uh-huh. being like the I'm going to put it all out there kind of guy like you were saying. Mm. So I can't I feel like I can't back off of it now because there are definitely at this point, there's a whole set of people that love how hot I get over this stuff. And for anybody that might not know or might want to see an example of this, you mentioned it there. I did actually for the bowl game. We did a full game live stream during the bowl game with myself and former Vols quarterback, Jonathan Crompton. Mm. And you could just see in real time on video, me have a complete meltdown of watching <laughs> Tennessee. Um, and, and I mean, and I'll, I'll put it this way. If you actually watch it, I was like a toned down version of what I really wanted to say. We got off of there mm-hmm. when I was off camera, but it was just me and him and the producer. And I was like, damn it like just like i let I actually let it out what i mm-hmm. wanted to let out instead of just totally embarrassing myself right so um and you do you do also see that on twitch specifically with the titans uh i'm i'm a, i got some hot takes with the titans um 
but I, you know, at the end of the day, it's all fun. It's just sports, man. And he, like that, that's why anybody, like people come back and be like, oh, you just as a clown take, you're being so emotional. Like, it's sports. Who, like, who cares? I'm not like, this is not something that at the end of the day is, is going to truly affect any of our, our lives unless you, I don't know, work for the team or something. Which sounds and awful. So I, I have no interest in that. I don't know how people yeah. do that anymore. No. And, and so I, you just got to take it to what it is. I, at this point, I, I just think it's fun. I guess I've, I've done it for so long that I'm just used to it, I guess. I like it. I mean, you're a trooper. I'm never doing anything of the sort. I, uh, I, I like have my phone all the way out of the room all the time anyway. Um, I, don't, I don't like having it near me to tempt me. Uh, Twitter is for my stuff that I promote, and then I'm off, and then I'm doing other stuff. I can't do it. I can't get sucked into the vortex. And ball Twitter is a very different animal entirely, but I did getting uh i don't know if you remember this and we'll get the titans in a second but do you remember did you go to the georgia game this year yes uh, no i uh, so for this entire season i had to do the show with jonathan Crompton. we did it for every single game so i i was not able to go to any games this year but i have been to many georgia games okay um i was actually at the tennessee georgia game that crompton yeah. played at the surprise upset and what oh nine was that i was i was also i was actually the, uh, I was actually in the students, uh, not the student section. I was in the away section, like in the Georgia section, mm-hmm. sat next to a guy at that game who, and, and you know, before it got out of hand for Georgia, literally barked at me and my friend. <laughs> he was sitting next to us. He was like a college age dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Tennessee proceeded to just kick their butt up and down the field. And it mm-hmm. is still, it's such a great, great and fond uh, memory of mine. So uh, that's, that's funny. I was at that game also. Small world, small world. Yeah. Um, well, we have to talk about. Uh, oh, that, that, hold on. There's a reason I brought that up, and yeah, then we'll yes, get the type. The Georgia game. Did yes. You? Yeah. Okay. That there's a reason I brought that up. Okay. So I like someone sent me on Twitter, like the my friend Matt Green, who we went to undergrad together at North Georgia. He does the college football show with me twice a week during the season, and he sent me this tweet um, that a certain reporter in Atlanta had tweeted out uh, that there was a Georgia takeover. Did you see this during the time? And I, I remember distinctly just like my blood boiling because I was there and he sent it to me because he's a Georgia fan and he was like, oh, a Knoxville takeover by Georgia. And it was because there was lights and apparently Georgia does the the phone light thing and going into the fourth quarter at night. And uh, there was a lot of black in the stadium. And I told him, I was like, okay, two things here. If this reporter had just looked at two, just Two quick things. As someone who was there and was around campus all day long, not true. It was about the same turnout as the Pitt game. About the same. Um, a lot of Pitt people, a lot of Georgia people, and it was it was just not a big deal. And then I see this, and it was like a Georgia takeover. I'm like, why add to this narrative? Because I was like, A, most Tennessee fans were wearing black that day because of the blackout. Yeah. And then part two, it was cold. Guess what? Most people's jackets are black and dark color because it was extremely cold for this game. Part three, Tennessee advertised this cell phone thing where you raise it up and you connect so you can, it, this little app thing that they want people to be engaged with. And that's the majority of what that was. And I was just so mad. I was already annoyed at how the game went. And then I just see this and I'm like, this is why Twitter's a terrible, terrible place. And I can't do this because none of this is true. None of that happened. You don't need any of this narrative. Georgia turned out solid. It was probably like 25, maybe 30% Georgia fans, maybe. But like, not there's no takeover none of that matters and the one thing you can never attack tennessee fans for is their commitment and packing uh neil whenever possible that was just 
And I was like, what am I doing? This, why am I raising my blood pressure for any of this? That's the reason I brought all that up. <laughs> I, that, that's a good point. You're, you're a better person than me. Cause I honestly, I enjoy when I see something stupid mm-hmm. on Twitter, just going directly at it and, and putting my feet in the, in the fire. <laughs> you know? Um, is that the right way to say that? However, that would be, you know, just jumping right in. Like I had, uh, the, the, I mean, I, I love getting into it with other fan bases like that because it just is. Again, you you can't you just can't take it too seriously. You got to just step back and be like, it's all you know. None of this would happen if this wasn't real life. I mean, it might if especially if alcohol is involved. But uh, you know, just in in general, like it's not real life, mm-hmm. and and it's just sports. But like uh, after the Purdue game, the there was some old retired NFL ref hmm. that weighed in and had some opinion about it where he was like the the whistle doesn't matter and so it's the I correct saw this. call and and i just and so he he ended up closing the comments on that because tennessee fans just lit into him and he he replied to his own tweet and said i had to shut off the comments tennessee fans were just too much and i replied and i said don't say something stupid on twitter if you don't want to get called stupid mm-hmm. and that guy messaged me back and he said oh look at this idiot <laughs> And I was like, yes, I like I see that. I know some people see that and they go, don't call me an idiot. That's not nice. I see that. and I'm like this. What a gift. Mm -hmm. What a gift from the gods that this guy has provided me. And of course, I, you know, I just shot that out there from there. And Tennessee fans, along with myself, just ragged on this guy for the entire day. It was pretty fun. Um, But it is it's an absolute cesspit. Mm -hmm whatever you've cesspool yeah um but you're a trooper i'm 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 so jaded at this point (laughs) i did did morning radio for years and you just you get all these bizarre responses and you just become Mm. like say whatever you want to me i i don't care i just i'm gonna say what i want and if you don't like it the unfollow button's right there you know Ben McKee got that to look forward to. <laughs> yes, he's still in it. Very much still in it. Um, well, let's talk about your other team, the Tennessee Titans, who are getting Derrick Henry back uh, because Derrick Henry is uh, not human, essentially, uh, coming back from that gruesome foot injury where I just I just penciled him in. He was just gone. Like that was just it, for most people. I feel like this kind of injury would sideline them for the remainder of the season. And that's just it. For Derrick Henry, he's like, uh, just another day at the office. And he is he's back, and Tennessee has survived. Foreman's been really good for you guys of late. Um, that came out of nowhere. I think he was actually on the Falcons briefly this year. He's bounced around the league a lot. Um, but Texas kid, all the talent in the world. I think he was a five-star back in the day. But you have this group, the number one team in the AFC as of this recording, kind of wild. I don't think anybody saw the Titans being the number one team in the AFC at this point in the year. It looks like you're in good shape to get that by, but with Henry coming back, what does this mean for the Titans going forward? And how does this change uh, their, their odds of getting out of the AFC this year? I would just say, I just can't believe our luck. That's, that's the craziest thing out of all of this, because the the fact is this, yes, we're the, the first see the AFC at the moment, but we didn't control that. We won we won our enough games mm-hmm. to be first, but ultimately if the Chiefs beat the Bengals this past week, we're not first. The Chiefs would have been first. Um and the Bing- thankfully Joe Burrow comes through and beats the Chiefs. Um 
And so we sort of backdoored our way into first place in the AFC and and thankfully played the Chiefs earlier in the season when Mahomes was just a shell of himself. Nobody really knows what was happening earlier in the season, but he's since fixed that, whatever it was. Uh, and and so happy with the way that it's worked out. Just that was, was one of the best Sundays in the history of Titans football, I think, last week, if you can end up beating um, the Texans this week and getting the, the number one seed in the AFC. It just is un- unbelievable the way that things have fallen into place because you hit that that lottery of getting the first spot in the AFC. And then two days later, Derrick Henry is back on the practice field. And it's a, it's a Derrick Henry who's had all this time to just rest up and do nothing at this point, do nothing but train to get his legs right. And I, I got to think if you're other teams in the AFC, it's got to be horrifying because the Titans somehow are beating teams without Derrick Henry. You said Dante Foreman's been really good. And that's absolutely true. Specifically, the defense has been better than I I ever thought it could be. The defense was so bad last year. And just whatever flip switch got flipped, it's been incredible to see. Um, And all all credit to to the staff and and Vrabel. I have been unbelievably critical of Mike Vrabel to the point where earlier this season, I directly – Said on to you, you know, we've already been talking. I'm an emotional tear. I mean, I, I said, and I, I stand by when I said this. Tennessee with Derrick Henry started the season two and two and lost to the Jets. And after that loss to the Jets, I said, get this guy out of town. This is terrible. This team has a generational running back, a generational wide receiver, a quarterback who can get the ball to that wide receiver and hand the ball off effectively and make smart plays with that running back. And we're losing to the Jets. Like eject this dude into the sun. What is it? <laughs> and and then he has sent Derrick Henry goes out and we find a way to sweep the Colts, which is unbelievable. And then Derrick Henry goes out and he's found a way to get this number one seed in the AFC. And I, I it's it's just crazy. I, I mean, and all of the injuries this year, suddenly almost all of those people are back and healthy. You're you know, knock on every piece of wood available, but right now avoiding the COVID uh whatever you the COVID protocols. Um, I, it's, it's crazy. I, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm happy, but as a Titans fan, I can tell you it's almost too much luck. Like I kind of go, this is shaping up too nicely. Where's the catch where mm. it's and, and what it feels like is we're going to lose the Texans this week. That's what it's got to be. No, no, <laughs> no, don't say that. Yeah, hopefully not. Hopefully yeah. not, but we'll see. Well, I'm going to have to adopt the Titans down the, the rest of the way here with the Falcons eliminated and eliminated in just brutal fashion for me. So I uh, I think that's what I've got to do. Um, how has the running game survived, though, without Henry? You We've mentioned Foreman, but like, what have you seen specifically that uh, they've been able to scheme up to keep this offense moving? I mean, you haven't gotten really anything out of Julio Jones this year. Um, AJ Brown's missed some time. A lot of guys in and out of the lineup, but... Um, the offense has still survived. You mentioned it's been mostly a defensive-led effort, but the offense still has had to do enough to survive because there was those early questions where it was like, oh, they're not running nearly as much play action as the year before. What are they doing here? And then it started to adjust as the season went on. But what have you seen that's been different uh, from what you saw early on into the last few weeks? I mean, I think the the defense does really tell the whole story. Before Derrick Henry, I want to say, I saw the stat. We were averaging like 29 points a game, and he goes out and it went down to like 21 points a game. So, I mean, 
it just killed the offense. Took off a full touchdown mm-hmm. uh, average per game. But I don't know that I love this strategy, but it has worked out. Todd Downing, the offensive coordinator, and in uh, in with Vrabel, their strategy has been to just keep the offense the way that it was. Mm. We're going to try to stay in that same vein, not go away from that. And, I mean, 21 points a game isn't going to cut it, but when your defense is playing as well as this one is, it has been cutting it. And so they've just found a way to grind it out. I, th- that's that's really it. They've just found a way. Because even the offensive line has been a patchwork. Because, I, you know, you would think that maybe the answer to your question would be, oh, well, the offensive line has been really good. That's not necessarily true. I mean, they've allowed way more sacks this season than last season. And the the run game, obviously, with Derrick Henry out is just that much tougher. And so whatever it is between the complementary football, between the offense and the defense, is just allowed for some of these wins. Like the, the perfect example of this is the 49ers game uh, a couple of weeks ago where you're down, I believe we were down 17 to zero, if I'm thinking correctly, came back, scored 20 points in the second half, just squeaked it, just squeaked it out somehow. I still don't totally understand, but just right at the end, kicked a field goal to win. And it just is survive in advance. And that's all that they've done. Just whatever it is, the team is tough. They're mentally tough. They have good leadership. Um, between guys like Luan, Tannehill, just these dudes that are kind of been there, done that sort of types. And, I mean, A.J. Brown coming back changes everything. But even in those games where he's been out, they just – they scrape by. I, I, It is genuinely tough for me to analyze because it's really an anomaly. Like, that's it. I, I don't really understand it. The, on paper – Everything says that this team should absolutely stink without Derrick Henry, and and they just have not. But I, I think ultimately, I don't know that the running game has been that great. Dante Foreman has been a really nice, refreshing piece, and and even things stepped up when when Dontrell Hilliard got brought in. He he had a really nice first game, has been a, a good contributor since. Scored a touchdown against the Dolphins, but just it, it's it's been the defense just carrying this team, which to me. When you look at teams that have won Super Bowls, just like that, that was what, uh, when it came to the playoffs, is what the Bucks hung their hat on back then. You know, you look at some of those past teams, like when, when Denver won their last Super Bowl, it was all defense on that team. And so it's, it's different from past years. We're not leaning totally on Derrick Henry. You have a great set of players on the other side of the ball. This is, this is as complete as I think it's ever going to get for Vrabel. I mean, I, I don't know how you get a whole lot better than this. I don't want to say that it's now or never, but it is kind of now or never if it's not you know this season, hopefully next season also. But you just never know. You have to take advantage of it when you got it. And right now, they got the mojo working. Defense is working. Offense is working as good as it can without Derrick Henry. And then you're getting that guy back. So, man, I... Uh, I, as I said, as a Titans fan and as cynical as I am, it, it almost pains me to have optimism like that. Like, I just am like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I should have optimism. But the odds are good, man. The If you look at the last few years, the number one seed matters. We like to believe yeah. the NFL is a lot more of a parity sport than it really is. That home field advantage and being a high seed, it matters. And the ma- vast majority of our Super Bowl representatives in the last few years have been number one overall seeds. Um, and you know, 
something that's been huge this year. And if you live outside of Tennessee, you're not really going to get this as mm-hmm. much. But like, there have been almost no Titans fans until almost just until this year. It's been it's been cumulative over the last few years of good seasons. Had six straight winning seasons, and that's nice. And it's taken all of that. But this Logan Ryan year, emphasized that. <laughs> yeah, oh, boy, I got some thoughts on that. Too, but, <laughs> um, but I mean, ultimately, he wasn't necessarily wrong about when he was here back, starting what like 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the, the fan base was lame. Opposing fan bases would come in and have more fans, and there were Titans fans in Nissan Stadium. And it was embarrassing. And then this season, they have been borderline sellouts and big crowds and tons of enthusiasm. And they've really flipped the script on that. And so I think more than any year ever, uh, the the home field advantage is huge for the Titans. I mean, it, I don't want to put the success of the rest of the season on this singular game. I think you could still find success if you end up blowing it against the Texans, but man, it, it would be massive to get home field all the way through the playoffs. Oh my gosh, it would be huge. All right. Last question. We got to go. How do you think the season ends for the Titans? Do they make the Super Bowl? I think we make it to the AFC championship game and lose to the chiefs. Yeah. Cause it just, it's so tough to beat a team twice in one year, man. Like, and you just, you caught the Chiefs at the exact right time, and that's about the only offense in the AFC that I see that could really be effective mm. against the way the Titans' defense is playing right now. I mean, I just think they're no matter what, Mahomes is going to get his in that game. But if it is in Tennessee, again, that's is it. It is as perfect of a situation as you will ever get. But I. I just can't get over my my Titans fan tendencies. It just feels like it's too good. It's too good to be true. Where's the catch? What's going to happen? But I do think you win this week. I don't want to say it's a shoe into the AFC Championship game, but I don't think that you play a team that's better than you before the AFC Championship game. And then I think the Chiefs are they're they're the kryptonite to to me. And I you know and I'm just assuming they would be the team that would make it. You know whoever plays right at the right time. But I just am assuming it would be them. Um, so we'll see, but that's that's my prediction. I hope it is. I hope it's a Super Bowl. Honestly. Well, there you go. But that's that would be my prediction as well. There you go, Charlie. Thank you so much for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Good luck the rest of the way, and uh, we'll circle back maybe when the the Titans uh, win a Super Bowl. We'll see. Absolutely, man. I hope so. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you to Charlie Burris of A to Z Sports. Thank you to Stats by Will, Mr. Will Warren, and of course, fellow University of North Georgia alumni, Matt Green, for coming on the pod today. Go follow them on their social media channels if you've not already done so, and go support all their work. Uh, Thank you again uh, to you, the listener, for listening to this edition of the Chase Thomas Podcast. New episode tomorrow, per usual but don't forget, if you enjoyed uh, today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, make sure to uh, leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, make sure to tell a friend, coworker, family member, whoever about the podcast and why you like it and uh, help spread the word. That way, I promise it does help. Uh, thank you guys so much. And uh, I will talk to you guys tomorrow. Uncle Derek, how'd I do? Nicely done, nephew.
Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.